I am Anthony, the host of my PhD Experience Podcast, a show that brings to you interesting insights about how to navigate graduate school, bag your PhD, and secure a postdoctoral position. Today, my guest is uh, Dr. Ayomide Odusheye. I am thrilled to welcome you to my PhD Experience Podcast. Thank you for joining me. Good morning. Good morning. And thank you for inviting me. Okay. Um, You know, you are one um, lady I see on... uh, on, on, uh, LinkedIn that inspires me a lot. So I see a lot of your work and I'm like, wow, we have areas of interest. So I said, no, she must come to speak on my podcast. Anyway, for for, for our listeners that may not know you, kindly introduce yourself. Oh, thank you very much. So my name is Ayumidi Oluche, as you have said, and I'm currently, I am a sexual reproductive health expert. And I currently work with the United Nations um, International Institute of Global Health, where I um, work on uh, consolidating and synthesizing evidence on what works in gender and health. Thank you. Great. Um, So, um, you know, your journey towards the UN is a long journey. So perhaps you can um, tell us how, how, you know, you started, what motivated you to pursue a PhD? Okay, so thank you very much for that question. So yeah, what motivated me to pursue a PhD? I would say that when I finished my master's, I was done, like I was done with anything education. Like I was like, I'm never never reading again. I'm not doing this again because I was just, for me, the master's was quite stressful. And and again, I did it in a different country than, than um, I originated from. So I'm from Nigeria. And then I had to move to the UK. And I, and I had very few family members with me in the UK. So that move was quite difficult. So when I finished my master's, I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm coming back. But then I realized that when I came back to the to to um to Nigeria, one of the things I saw was that I had this dream. I've always had this dream. I wanted to work with either the UN and the WHO World Bank or work in any organization that is um doing big things with adolescent sexual reproductive health. And every time I checked their profiles, you either had to have a PhD or five to seven years experience. And I did not have any of that. And so I knew that, okay, this was going to be a long way to get to my dream. So what did I do? I decided to start talking to people that had done a PhD and start asking them what their experience was like. And then I also began to think about how to expand on my dissertation. So my dissertation was on um, teenage pregnancy and motherhood. And this was something that um, a lot of people were thinking then that, oh, I am there is something we should expand work on. Let's understand the experiences of young mothers, especially in Nigeria, because we didn't have that kind of the data. So, what I did was that um, I developed a proposal. So this is for everyone out there. 
when you want to um, write, um, when you want to, you know, do a PhD, I think the first thing that you have to first do is find for yourself a topic that you are interested in. And not just the topic that, that you think, oh, let's let me pick any topic. It has to be something you're interested in because you're going to be doing it for the next three and a half years. So you really need to have interest in that topic. That's number one. Number two is know the methods that you need and know them well. So even if you don't know them well, have like a very thorough understanding of the methods because I think that's another thing that people do. People just go online, look at maybe four or five papers and then pick out their methodology and then say, this is what I'm going to do in my PhD. And when you're writing your proposal, everybody's like how are you going to do this and then they find you do not know what you're doing so i think first of all um, get a very good topic that you're interested in and when i say good topic i think one of the things that i've realized especially with trying to get a scholarship if you are aiming for a scholarship you have to pick a topic that relates to the current um the current global issues that we are having so for example if you pick um, if you pick a study now, if you say you probably want to do a study now on um, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on vulnerable populations or on um, emerging markets, you are, you are more likely to get attention, if you get what I mean. So you have to, you know, if you're looking towards a scholarship, you have, you have to not just pick a topic you're interested in, but a topic that is of um global issue so when i was so now went back so this was in 2015 so when i finished in 20 2016 so the all of 2015 to 2016 yes that's where the real story is i was like okay i'm going to do a phd so one of the things i did was that like i said before spoke to some people knew that i knew that i had to develop a proposal so um if you do not know already when you're developing a proposal it has to have the introduction the, the um the aims and objectives, please keep it to probably two or three objectives or four at the most. Nobody wants 10 objectives and 10 research questions, just something very simple. So um, you have to have your research objective, then the justification for your study, that's the reason why you're doing it at this time. And then how you're going to do it over the course of the, of the um, year, that's if I've captured everything. So I did that, drafted that, and then I sat down and then I started looking for schools to pitch it to. Now, this is, I think for me, this is where um, a lot of people encounter stress and, um, and they give up on time. Men, often than not, you're going to probably have to pitch your PhD proposal to more than three, four universities before you can get a full funding or even get somebody that is interested. So don't feel bad about it if you get rejections. I do remember that at the point in my life, everything that was on my uh, email was, we're so sorry, we cannot pick you at the moment. We're just like every, like I already crammed the email. Yeah. Like really, I, I, I said, thank you very much for this. And unfortunately, <laughs> I don't even need, I don't need to read to the end. Yeah. I already know. I already know. And, and it can be very depressing because it might may make you feel, you know, that, oh, what am I doing wrong? One of the things I want to what want to tell people is enjoy the process, embrace the process. I would say that one of the things that 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 taught me was 
every time that I sent a proposal out, and I said, and also another thing I have to tell you is, especially if you're looking for funding and you are from a lower middle income country, do not be afraid to move. Move. You can send to, to China, you can send to Australia, you can send, everybody always wants to come to the UK or the US or America. Those are beautiful destinations. You can also, there are other places apart from these places. You can go to New Zealand, you can go to Australia, like I said, you can go to China. There are so many places. So don't just limit yourself to, you know, three countries at the most. So I was applying to all of these countries, looking at their sexual and reproductive health programs, looking at what they've done, looking at, you know, um, researchers in the area and I forgot to add yes when you are trying to send your PhD proposal please 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 you need to have like this introductory message always have that and and that should when that's that's the introductory message that you send to your prospective supervisor so it's not just um you're just sending your 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 PhD proposal if you send that to me I will not even read it you need to you know tell me you need to you know in the email you know tell me that you've seen my work and yes read the work tell me you've seen my work you know tell me why you're interested in taking why you want me to take you as a supervisor um, as a as a as a as a mentee or a supervisee I can't remember the word now no, and then the <laughs> okay that's the word thank you and then attach your attach your um, proposal, attach your CV. And when I say CV, please not the work CV, an academic CV. So uh, the difference between an academic CV and a work CV is um, a work CV contains, you know, all the things you've done uh, in the workplace. An academic CV is more tailored to the things you've done in, in a research setting. So maybe in a CV, you're highlighting things like, oh, oh I, 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 I led a team of 700 people. In an academic CV, you are, what you're doing is you're talking about if, you are, if you've supervised students before, if you've done some research methodologies, list them there. Um, if you have publications, list them there. If you've collaborated in your area, list them there. So you attach your academic CV and then you leave it and wait for them to respond. And also make sure the title of your email is very catchy. You cannot just say hello and then <laughs> send it. Nobody's going to read that. Okay, don't let me say nobody's going to read that. See the way I'm talking like I'm a professor. <laughs> um, it will be difficult for people to, you know, be interested. So you probably want to do something very catchy, maybe something like, um, I, um, I want you to be my supervisor or, you know, application for something. So they know that it is not just um, um, a, a phishing email, like it is actually an email from a prospective student. So that that those are the things you have to do. So I did that, sent it round, and like I said before, it can be a very difficult process. It took me between twenty fifteen. Um, no, actually, it took me from this December of twenty fifteen to May of twenty seven um, twenty sixteen before I got. I got um, so a place. So like it took me a while. It didn't just happen immediately. And and by the way, in most of these interviews, um, in most of these applications, you will get to the interview stage. Talk to them. Everybody will smile at you sometimes. You would think you've gotten the PhD and then they will say, sorry, there was another country that was better than you. So one of the things I used to do, and I think that really helped me to refine my, method, my, 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 my proposal was that 
every time I got a rejection, I would send an email back telling them thank you and asking them what areas could I have improved upon more. And so I would add that, send it to the next person. If I get a rejection, what areas could I have improved upon more? Add that. And so by the time I got to the final version and then I sent it, like I wasn't even confident that at this point, I think I've covered every other thing everybody's looking for. And so, yeah, yeah, I got lucky. I got a full funded, fully funded scholarship. And then I came back into the UK. And yeah, so I think this is where I would really start with the PhD, even though it is important for you to you know, know your topic, be interested in your topic, I will say that probably 70 to 80% of the time, the topic you start with is not the topic you would end up with at the end. So just, just be prepared for that, like it changes. Um, and, and also I think another thing that is important for people to understand is which I, I, I had a lot of um, struggles, you know, understanding initially was that the PhD is a learning process. You, you don't know everything. So um, it's okay to fail. It's okay to fall. It's okay to, to, to not know what you're doing. I mean, I mean, a lot of people, you know, we, we just dive in head on initially because it's just a lot of information and you're, you're still trying to figure out what area. It's okay not to know what the end product will look like, but the most important thing is for you to, you know, follow the process and do it at your own pace. I think it's very important that we do things at our own pace because of imposter syndrome. So just so you know, Whenever you enter into any PhD program, there will be people that will appear 10 times or 100 times smarter than you. And by the time they start listing all the things they've done in their life, you will be left wondering what you were doing with your life in the last, you know, in the last maybe three or four years. So that would always happen. There will be that feeling of, you know, feeling intimidated or feeling like you cannot do this. And I want, I think it's very important that people know that this is, exceptionally common like it is so common everybody goes almost everybody goes through this don't let me say everybody almost everybody goes through this and I think the most important thing is another thing that is very important that I found that was helpful in my PhD was getting support it is very important that you have support and when I say support I'm not just talking about <clears throat> um, having your supervisors to support you you need your peers. You need to be surrounded by, you know, your peers to support you because um, it can be quite, um, doing a PhD can be quite lonely sometimes because um, a lot of people do not understand what you're doing. Like a lot of the outside world do not understand. They just know you're reading. And then there's this assumption that you must be exceptionally intelligent for you to be reading this much. And you might be struggling, you know, with understanding certain things, knowing certain things. Um, you, there, there are a lot of things you might be struggling with. Sometimes it might not even be PhD related. It might be family related. You might be, you might feel alone in a, um, a different country. So for me, I would share this that, and I think it's something I'm actually interested in now. One of the things that I realized that kind of made my PhD both an interesting and an incredibly isolated experience was that I was a migrant and that um, reflected in the, in the way that I put pressure on myself. So 
Um, you know, if you migrate to another country, you have a visa and it is for a certain amount of years. And that means that whether you like it or not, you have to finish your PhD in that amount of years. And so that can put a lot of pressure on you to finish your PhD up in that amount of years. So even if the school says things like, oh, you can post your PhD and take a break. It does not apply to someone like you because you cannot post your PhD. If you post your PhD, you're going back to your country. If you go back to your country to come back, you have to start visa all over again. And God help you that there's a pandemic like this, you're stuck. So, you know, things like this are, you know, things that um, you might not necessarily get other people that have the same lived experiences. So it's good to have that social support. So I would say it is very important that you have that social support, both from your peers and also, I would also say um, in the PhD, it's also very important that you have a very good rapport with your supervisors. They will be the game changers for you eventually. They are the ones that um, will um, help you in collaborating and networking when you finish your PhD in the, to try and find your fit. So it's very good that you come in with a listening perspective and not you know, always on the defensive because nobody likes to get their work corrected all the time, right? And nobody likes to put in so much effort and have it destroyed to shreds. But we, you need to learn, you know, the emotional aspect or the emotional maturity of, you know, being calm through, through stressful situations and, you know, learning how to navigate this. And yeah, I think I, I don't know if there are other things I've not covered. And uh, yeah. Anthony said, I think you sort of covered the whole interview. <laughs> I was just listening <laughs> deeply, saying, "Wow, this this is really interesting." Um, especially, you know, of course, uh, I myself I did my PhD in South Africa, and there's this constant pressure. You really need to, you know, tick all the boxes. You don't want. Yeah. To, to, to not finish at a particular time. You don't want to finish and not have something else, you know, to keep you going. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe this, there's a question I need to ask you. Um, right, and it's a question I love asking um, Nigerians, anyone in particular that studies, um, that study abroad. When you were leaving Nigeria, were you thinking about returning? Initially, I was. Initially, I was because... Because I, I saw that, and like I said, my project was, my PhD was even in, situated in Nigeria. So like, I really wanted to come back because I saw that we had a very huge gap in the, um, in the way in which we, we discussed about adolescent sexuality and in the way in which we were still, um, we were still restraining their access to services. So I knew that this is something that we need to start you know, talking about and, you know, start working on because the kinds, the kind of um, perspective or the kind of um, societal framing that we pass down to adolescents, is it, it, they are the futures of tomorrow or they are the, going to be the leaders. So if we give them the same perspective that we had, they would recycle it and give it to the next generation. So I knew that we had to start having concrete conversations around adolescent sexuality, um, early pregnancy and motherhood, and how that facilitates their return to school. So I was really interested in coming back to Nigeria to do to um, to start up something or to work with people, but I think along the line, I began to realize that to break into the adolescent sexual and reproductive space, 
<laughs> in Nigeria can be uh, tricky. It can be tricky, and and so I was. I decided to take the the other route to to, to stay in the abroad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, for for me as well. Um, I was hoping to just you know get my PhD and return to Nigeria uh, to work. I, I love teaching. Um, I think for my NYC, I taught in a in a high school. I taught mathematics actually. <laughs> So, so and, and, and anyway, aside from that, I was also teaching um, another, another, on another uh, private space where you just teach professionals uh, on other skills mm -hmm. that you acquire. So I've got some experience in teaching. And even though I was working in, um, in the financial sector, you know, my interest was in teaching. So I thought, okay, maybe I should finish my PhD and then come take up a lecturing job and then uh, along the line i started comparing salaries so i wouldn't mind <laughs> money is related to money, money. <laughs> I, actually got, I actually got an offer at uh, university of Illinois, and i'm like nah nah, nah, oh. nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> salary is too small <laughs> so again just, just to be truthful um yeah, I, I was thinking yeah. about I was thinking about returning, but within six months of arriving in South Africa, I said, "Nah, I'm not, I'm not returning." <laughs> <laughs> so just 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 to share my own story. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I think I think that is sorry. Yeah, I liked that. That that is actually that is actually something that you know a lot of people. Um, um, that that is sad actually. That is sad about Nigeria is the value that you place. You know, on the on the knowledge, on the on the on the knowledge of or the expertise of someone else, it's it can be quite low, the mm. kind of that they mm. place on you, and so the kind of money that they're offering you versus the kind of money that another person is offering, mm. yeah, it's it's really different. Like, so just like you said, you know, and this is another thing I want people to know also is, and it's still something I'm struggling with. So. I just, you know, I just want to give it to people out there so that they begin to understand this. It's very important to know your value. You know, I remember my first ever consultancy job. Like when I when I said my rates, the person looked at me like, "What type of <laughs> rate is that?" You know, like it was it yeah. was the silliest amount of money. And for me, it was like, "Oh my god!" That's I'm and then you know when I start, and 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 this is another thing you also need to um, people need to learn. You know when you're going into the PhD, you know really know what is going on in your field. Um, what are the what are the important skills that they um, people need? That's number one. Um, what are the important areas? You know, and and also know. I think this is so important. Know how to evolve. So initially, I was. And I'm still there. I was in sexual reproductive, sexual reproductive, sexual reproductive. And my work was on, you know, young girls, adolescents and all of that. And then I began to see that the world started changing into gender. And I'm like, you know what? I can evolve to gender too. I mean, all my work is gendered. Everything about her, it has gendered consequences. Everything is for women. Yeah. So I'm a gender expert. Let us begin to look in that area. And, you know, but like I said, it's very important that, you know, you talk to people. If you don't talk to people, you don't know how much they are charging. You don't know um, how much um, other people are earning. And if you, and, and I know, I don't know why we have this very 
um, secretive way of discussing salaries or discussing, you know, nobody wants nobody wants any other person to know what they are any. I don't know why. But it helps you so that you know whether you're shortchanging yourself or whether you're getting a good deal. For me, um, I'm very grateful to my supervisors. They were the ones that, you know, um, were putting out the rates for me. So they would say, um, I always going to take this project at so so sorry. And then I would be looking at the amount of money like <laughs> is this me? Really? Is this me? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> I don't even know anything. But that was very helpful, yeah. And so, and that's another thing I, I really want other people to think about. Like, if you're going to come back into a country, or you maybe you're going, if you're moving maybe from your country to another country, and then you're looking at coming back, it is very important for you to, you know, look at a lot of stuff. I think for me, it is usually the pros and cons. And I think that's why I wanted to move to Nigeria initially. You know, first of all, the desire to be in low and middle income countries and, you know, because I think that's the next big thing. Low and middle income countries is the area of focus. And I think like we are still going to need to really build it up in, especially in the areas of sexual reproductive health. But at the same time, I was looking at, you know, the opportunity cost, like, if I get, um, if I get, um, uh, if I if I become, if I work in, you know, well-known places, and then I come back to Nigeria, maybe in the long run, as a consultant, then you would know my value because I already have the global not experience in quotes, which is sad, but that is how it currently is. That you're more respected when you have um, some Western uh, experience and you're coming back into the country, then you just finished your PhD and then you're just coming into the country. And um, we're talking about the salary gap here now. So for anybody that probably wants to start arguing, we're just talking about the salary gap. We're not talking about um, whether or not you can get a good job. You can't get a good job. We're just talking about the amount of money you'll be getting versus the amount of money you'll be getting elsewhere. So I think that's really good. And I think um, another, thing, another thing that I forgot to mention here is if you're going to be like um, Anthony and I, and you're going to probably stay out of um, the country, I think one of the things I'm coming to realize now is that you have to begin to make peace with the fact that you will probably be a nomad for a long time. And what I mean is like you migrate a lot. So if you do not like migrating a lot, uh, that can be quite, um, it can be a quite difficult experience. So um, for me now, I've, I've actually currently, I think I've lived across three continents now. I'm going to my fourth continent soon. Wow. And yes, yes. <laughs> so it is never a static thing. You start from Africa, then you you move to Asia, then you probably move to Europe. And, and it is like that because you keep getting offers like that. So um, it is important for you to know that there might be a little bit of moves in your life before finally settling in on a perfect on a on a permanent place. And this is usually because of the residence permits. So that's another thing you want to remember. So if you're probably getting a job and maybe um, you're just going to be on the job for maybe three years, four years, um, you have to understand that that doesn't you still that your resident permit might not have been um, finalized by the time your contract is up, meaning that you might have to get another job. And then if you get another job, it might not be in the same country. You might start out from um, Kenya and then you get another job in the US. Then you have to move there to the US again. 
I might need to stay another four years in the US. Your residence permit may not have been done. Then you get another job in the UK, you come back to the UK. So these are the things you have to um, think about. But don't get overwhelmed. One of the things I always say is embrace the process. We can never know the end of anything to embrace the process. Now, when Anthony was talking about something, I wanted to point this out. In fact, the moment he told me that, oh, you wanted me to talk, I was like, I'm going to talk about this. And I'm happy that I have not forgotten. Mm. Another thing I want people to understand is when you're doing a PhD, it's very important to stay um, true to yourself or true to your methods. So, for example, but also, you know, have an appreciation for other methods. So, for example, I am a qualitative researcher, a purely qualitative researcher, and I know that for the for the for the for I can't remember for how long everybody tries to make you a quantitative person, or they try to, you know, put in the quantitative, um, you know, try to say um, maybe your work is not complete if you've not done a quantitative aspect to it, or if you've not done a mixed methods. But what I want you to understand is, you don't always have to, you know, go with what is trending in terms of methodology, if you're trying to um, do um, your research sometimes, if you go with even the list um, listings, you uncover many interesting things that um, the quant areas will need. So it's usually like a marriage. So don't always feel like, oh, I'm a qualitative researcher. I may never get, I may never get a PhD funding if I am not doing something that has impact on maybe a thousand people or two thousand people. No, sometimes um, you you want to do something that helps people to understand certain processes and you know and that is actually okay so if you want to do a mixed methods great if you want to do quants great if you want to do qualitative great but you know be true to yourself stick to it don't double into qualitative if you don't have an interest in it and then you want to use it as a methodology don't double into quants if you really don't have an interest in it don't double into mixed methods sometimes being simple Less is more, really. Less is more. That's what I would say. So if you choose only a quant aspect, um, it's fine. If you choose only a course, it's fine. If you choose a mixed method, it's also equally good. And yeah. And then I think another thing I forgot to mention was um, about uh, when you when you get into the PhD process, a lot of people will begin to tell you how important it is to publish. So there is this phrase I really don't like, and I don't know why. It's the phrase publish or perish. I really, really don't like that phrase because um, because it, it, it makes you, it, it's, I feel it streamlines you in the sense that it makes everything about your PhD or anything about your work to seem like you always have to publish, publish, publish. And we begin to forget that there are other important aspects of um, publishing because for me, I remember when I started my PhD and I was finding a lot of publications, you know, um, on teenage pregnancy and motherhood. I was like, how come this is common knowledge in the academic world? And it's not common knowledge in the social world. And mm -hmm. I think for me, that's one of the things I'm very concerned about. And I'm happy that we are having, you know, podcasts like this that allow people to, you know, because if we wrote this out as a paper, you can be rest assured that most the people that are going to read the paper are probably academicians, uh, policy makers, or people that are interested in papers. 
not everybody is interested in, you know, reading a paper. Sometimes people just want to see things in uh, um, animations or you, they want to see things, you know, in a podcast series. They don't just, reading is not like, I'm not encouraging the non-reading culture, but I'm saying that reading an academic material sometimes, especially for um, the broader audience, might not necessarily be something that they are, they are, that they are interested in. So, um, don't be too, don't get too overwhelmed by the whole publish or perish thing. Yes, do publish because it helps with your career if you want to um, be in the academic world, but also um, leverage on impact. I think impact is the more, is the thing you should be looking at, impact. So um, where can I, you know, talk about my work? So things like, you know, going for conferences, that's equally great. Um, go for conferences, talk about your work there. Um, if you get to write in um, places like The Conversation, they cater to a, a better audience than, you know, academic audiences. You, you know, write, you know, write opinion pieces here and there. During my PhD, I wrote a lot of opinion pieces and I realized that those were the things that people were more interested in in the non-academic world. Do you understand? In the non-academic world, it's, uh, I'm not saying papers are not equally important, but I'm saying let your engagement be broad because that is where people are going to now. Let your engagement and your impact be broader than just publish, publish, publish. And also, while we're talking about publications, please, please, please avoid predatory journals. Our impact factor journals are the at the gold standard at the moment. So yes, that's what I would say about that. But if you don't get a paper published in your PhD, during your PhD, don't fret, don't panic. If you get opinion pieces, that counts as engagement for you, at least in the interim. But don't, you know, don't just die on publishing, publishing, publishing because um, then it narrows your expertise or, it's, or you turn down great opportunities like this because you're like, how does this affect, um, um, impact my career doing a podcast? But really, it's about how many more people can I reach to encourage them you know, to do something like a PhD like I did. And so, yeah, I think that's what I'm going to say on that. Thank you very much, Dr. Lusheye. I mean, it's been an uh, interesting and exciting conversation. I've learned a lot from you, and I believe my listeners have also learned something from you. Um, we will stop the, uh, this episode here and then continue the conversation with Dr. Lushaya in another episode. So please stay tuned and listen. She still has a lot more to say about post-PhD experience, the incredible journey uh, she's made so far to the UN, as well as other um, issues that are also quite, you know, conventional about marriage and uh, PhD. I'm sure you're interested in that. Please subscribe and share. Thank you.